Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about the topic of heaven. Where do we go when we die? Where do Christians go when they die? The Bible teaches that only if you believe in Christ will you go to heaven. John chapter 14 verse 1, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I'll be getting into that in a little bit later in this episode. But this episode is going to be all about heaven, all about the afterlife, all about... I'm not going to be talking about the bad place, not going to be talking about hell. I already had an episode on that. I think it was episode 28 called, Is Hell a Hellacious Doctrine? And so, no, I'm not going to be talking about the bad place today. I'm going to be talking about the good place. I'm going to be talking about the place that I want to go, that I'm looking forward to going to. And we're going to be looking about what the Bible has to say about heaven. So, let's get started. The first question that I'm going to address is, what is the basic doctrine of heaven? What is the basic doctrine of heaven? What does the Bible say about what happens to those who trust in Christ when they die? Does, is there an intermediate state? I think there is. I think the Bible is clear that when Christians die, they go to heaven as a pure soul or spirit or ghost or whatever you want to call it before they are resurrected. And some scriptural examples show that this is true. For example, Jesus said to the man on the cross next to him when he was being crucified, He said, today you shall be with me in paradise. You know, you turn to to Luke 23. This is the account of Jesus' crucifixion. There are two thieves next to Jesus. One is ridiculing him, saying, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and us. And then the other guy says, what's the matter with you? Don't you fear God? We deserve what we're getting. But this man, he hasn't done anything wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And that's when Jesus turns to this man and he says, Amen, I tell you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That day, today. The, the, day, that, the day that they're hanging on the cross. That day, the, 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 the thief next to Jesus is going to be with him in paradise. Paradise. So, obviously... Their souls went to paradise. And and Jesus was in paradise with the thief prior to being resurrected three days later. Moreover, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 to 8 says... I'm pulling it up on Bible Gateway. It says... For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, and here he's talking about our body, if we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as, we, that as long as we are at home in the body, We are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. 
for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Now, a number of things need to be pointed out here. Paul teaches a bodily resurrection. We are going to get a brand new body, a brand new physical body. And he compares the body that we are currently in and the body that we are going to get with an earthly tent and a building. And, and you know how frail a tent is. It can, it, just a big gust of wind can just re- utterly wreck it. But a building, that's a lot more sturdy. And so the body we're currently in is frail, it gets sick, it ages, and eventually it dies. But we're going to get a building, one that is going to last, you know, buildings, they last a lot longer than tents. So there's going to be a new body. But in the meantime, we're going to be in an intermediate state. We're going to be with the Lord while we are away from the body. That's what verse 8 says. We are confident, I say, and would be prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. This is also clear biblical evidence for substance dualism. The idea that we are not just physical bodies. We're not just molecules. We're not just atoms and chemicals. We have a soul that can exist apart from our body. We can be away from it. If we were our body, if our bo- if we were our bodies, if the mind is the brain and the brain is the mind, and if Evan Minton is Evan Minton's body, then it's impossible for me to be away from my body. Because that would be tantamount to saying that I would be away from myself. And you can't be away from my- yourself. I... I am with myself. I am with me everywhere I go. <laughs> I can't get away from myself. <laughs> so it it's it would be utterly incoherent for Paul to say that we could be away from the body unless there was an aspect of us that could exist apart from our body like a soul. And Paul says that when we are away from the body, we will be at home with the Lord. Like the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Amen, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. But their bodies weren't zapped up into heaven. Their bodies stayed on the cross until the Romans took them down and and, uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came and gave Jesus a a burial and put, put Jesus in... Um, not Nicodemus, and put Jesus in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. You know, their bodies didn't go anywhere. So if we are our bodies, we cannot be away from our bodies. And if we are our bodies, if G- if if the thief on the cross was his body, if 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 he was just a physical organism that had no soul then he could not be with Jesus in paradise on that very day. In fact, Jesus couldn't be in paradise on that very day if Jesus were his body. Now, of course, you may say, well, yeah, Jesus was God, uh, so he had a divine spirit that inhabited the body. Well, okay, sure, okay, then Jesus could be in paradise, but the thief would not follow, at least not on that day, and Jesus would be a liar. But we know that Jesus cannot be a liar. Jesus is God. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through him and for and for him. And nothing was made that has been, uh, that has been made through him. Jesus is God, and Jesus cannot lie, because God cannot lie. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one, and the word therefore one means one in essence, one in nature. In Mark chapter 14, at Jesus' trial, Jesus said to Caiaphas, after Caiaphas asked him, Are you the Son of God? Jesus said to him, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
And that is a very powerful affirmation of deity because Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, saying that he's going to... He's the Son of Man. And that is very significant. Most scholars realize that Jesus is referring to a prophecy made by, made by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel says... In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Now this son of man figure, he... he is given glory, authority, and sovereign power. And all nations and peoples of every language worship him. Worship is only due to God alone. It says his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He approaches the Ancient of Days and is led into his presence. He's got sovereign power and authority and over all the nations. This is a very... Um, this is a very exalted figure that Daniel is describing here. And by saying that he would be, and by Jesus saying to Caiaphas that he would be seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the Father, that is saying that he is going to be sitting on God's throne. By the way, that's a, a reference to a verse in Psalm chapter in Psalm 110. He's going to be seated at God's right hand. He's going to he's essentially saying, I'm going to be sitting on God's throne. He's equal to God. He's equal to God. He's sitting on his throne. Now, what most people don't understand is that the cloud language coming on the clouds also is evidence that Jesus believes that he's God. As, as Michael Heiser says in his uh, blog post on Logos.com called What's Ugaritic? got to do with it. Uh, he, Michael Heiser writes, quote, Throughout the Ugaritic texts, Baal is repeatedly called the one who rides the clouds, or the one who mounts the clouds. The description is recognized as an official title of Baal. No angel or lesser being bore the title. As such, everyone in Israel who heard this title associated it with a deity, not a man or an angel. Part of the literary strategy of the Israelite prophets was to take this well-known title and attribute it to Yahweh in some way. Consequently, Yahweh, the God of Israel, bears this descriptive title in several places in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 19 verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 26, Psalm chapter 68 verse 33, Psalm chapter 104 verse 3. For a faithful Israelite, then, there was only one God who rode on the clouds, Yahweh, end quote. Now, those passages that Heiser referenced, Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 26, Psalm chapter 68, verse 33, Psalm chapter 104, verse 3, they all describe Yahweh as the one who rides on the clouds. God is the cloud rider. And yet Jesus says that he's going to be riding on the clouds when he comes in judgment against the nation of Jerusalem for rejecting him as the Messiah. So Jesus is God. Jesus claimed to be God. John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the creator of everything. He is God. The, words the word was with God, not the same person as the first person of the Trinity, but he is God and he created everything. And so since Jesus is God, Jesus cannot lie. If God cannot lie, and Jesus is God, then it follows logically that Jesus cannot lie. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Now, it says here that God is not a man. This is Numbers 23, 19. 
th this text was was written pre-incarnation. So the the son did not have a human nature yet. This was in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 25 uh, in 1 Samuel 15:29, the Bible says, "Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind." Hebrews 6:18 says that it is impossible for God to lie. Psalm 89:35 says, "Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. God is not a liar." So when Jesus said to the thief on the cross in Luke 23:43, "Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise." That happened. They went to paradise. And yet that could not happen if the thief did not have a soul that existed apart from his body. Now, why I'm belaboring this point because there are Christians, admittedly in a minority, that affirm physicalism. The philosopher Peter Van Inwagen is one of them. Uh, there's also, um, I can't remember, remember her name, I think it was Nancy something, also a Christian philosopher, who is also a fig physicalist. William Lane Craig mentioned him, uh, mentioned her in his Defenders class, but I, but I can't I can't remember what what she's called. So there are Christians who deny the existence of the soul. And now they believe that they they don't deny they're not pure complete materialists like atheists are. I mean they do they do believe that God is an immaterial spirit and they they make exceptions for God, angels, and demons. But as far as humans are concerned, they don't they don't believe that humans have souls. And what I'm pointing out here is that. Luke chapter 23, verse 43, if physicalism were true, Jesus would be lying. Not only that, but 2 Corinthians 5 would make no sense. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-8. to So, if physicalism were true, what Paul is saying is incoherent. He's... Uh, he, he says we don't want to be naked, that is to say without a body. We, don't w we want to be further clothed. In other words, we want to just immediately transition from our frail, sickly, aging, perishable bodies, and we, and we just want to have that transformed into our imperishable, immortal bodies right away. We, we don't want to have to go through this... Um, waiting period in which we're just disembodied spirits. We don't want to be naked. We don't we want to be further clothed. We want to we want to put on the resurrection body. And he says that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. You can't be away from the body if you are your body. That would be to say that you could be away from yourself. And it makes no sense to be concerned about being naked, to not having a body, because you are your body. There's no way you can be naked. You, you can't be without a body. But Paul says here that you can. So I cannot be a physicalist on biblical grounds. I can't be, you know, and I can't, I would say I can't be a physicalist on philosophical grounds either. I'm thinking here of Tim Stratton's free-thinking argument against naturalism, which I did a whole episode on in episode 23. So, anyway, there is an intermediate state. When you die, you are going to be conscious, and you're going to be with the Lord, and you're going to meet believers who went before you. You're going to get to enjoy that right away as soon as you die. But, of course, that is not our ultimate hope. That is not what we ultimately look forward to. 
the Bible had uh, the the Bible has much more to say about the resurrection than it does the intermediate state, because that's what we ultimately look forward to. First Thessalonians chapter four verses thirteen to eighteen says, and this this is Paul's letter, his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. Paul says. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Jesus, uh, Paul says he's comforting Thessalonians here who are, or Thessalonians here that are, are apparently, apparently they, they've had some people die on them and they're, 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 they're taking it really hard. And, and Paul's, he's saying, comfort one another with these words. What are the words? Well, namely that, we're not gonna, we're not going to stay dead forever. Death is a temporary condition. Jesus died and rose again, and God is going to bring with when Jesus comes back, when Jesus returns, he's going to bring with those with him those that have fallen asleep in him. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for death. And so he says according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive those, those who are walking around when Jesus shows up and appears in the sky and says, Hey, y'all, I'm back. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, those who are still walking around, uh, they're not going to get their resurrection bodies before those who have died prior to the second coming. That's what Paul says in verse 15. We're not going to get our resurrection. You know, if Jesus comes back today, I'm not going to get my resurrection. Pro uh, you know, my grandparents are going to get theirs first. And then I'm going to get mine. And he says, the Lord will come down with a shout, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are still alive, we who are still walking around, we're going to be caught up together with him in the, them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And I don't want to get, I already kind of went off on a tangent going into the biblical evidence for the deity of Christ. I'm sorry about that. Uh, so I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but uh, this this is this is an eschatological passage, and, and this is a proof text for, uh, a, well, at least a pre-trib pre rapture, but, but at least a rapture in general. And I do think that it does teach, teach a rapture. I mean, I can't, we're going to be caught, we're going to meet the Lord in the air. I don't know how else to interpret that. But that doesn't mean that it's going to, like, take place before seven years of a global antichrist ruling the world or that, it's going to, or that God's going to snatch us up so we don't have to experience his divine wrath upon the earth or anything like that. I, um, I think, I'm not going to go into this too much because, again, uh, I, I went off on a tangent, and I don't want to go off on another tangent. Um, but, you know, I, I would just recommend getting R.C. Sproul's book, The Last Days According to Jesus. The, la the, it's, it, it, the Last Days According to Jesus, written by R.C. Sproul. And in that book, he points out that w what, we, what basically happens here is uh, Paul is sort of using imagery of that, of that ancient world that, you know, when a, a conquering ruler would come back into the city... The people in the city would go out of the city. They would go to the to the entrance of the gates to meet him, and then they would have a procession back into the city, back into the 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 gated fortified city. Um, and so that's basically what we're going to do. We're not we're not going to stay in the air for seven years. We're just going to go up there to meet the Lord because 
He's a conquering, he's our ruler. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's God Almighty. He's the second person of the Trinity. And he, is, and he has conquered. He has won the victory. He's conquered death. He's conquered sin in the grave. He has defeated the devil and all of his demons. And he's coming back to rule. And so we're going to go up there and we're going to meet him as he's coming back. We're going to we're going to meet him and then we're going to we're going to descend with him as people in the ancient world did with their human earthly kings. We're going to we're going to have a, a procession where the king of kings comes back into this dimension. That's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to that. Are you? So, there is a bodily resurrection. We're going to get new bodies. This is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, and it's also, mentioned, it's also talked about in Philippians 3. And please bear with me as I pull up that passage on Bible Gateway. Um, nope. I got the reference wrong. Oh well, it's also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, the I've if you've been following this podcast and you uh, listened to my series on the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians played a big part in the apologetics of that because it's a creed. It's a creed, it dates within five years of Jesus' death, so there's no way legend could grow up and, and corrupt, uh, you know, verses 3 to 8 and... and and he's mentioning all of these, all of these resurrection appearances. Jesus, uh, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. He appeared to five hundred. Then he appeared to James. And then Paul says he appeared to me last. And, you know why is Paul mentioning all this? Why is Paul mentioning all of these postmortem appearances? Uh, well, because they were the the, the Corinthian church. Were de- they were denying the resurrection, and he he made a he made a reductio ad absurdum argument. Basically, he said, you know, if the dead are, he says, if the dead are not raised, like you say, then that means Christ hasn't been raised, and if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. We're still in our sins, and we're found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him from the dead. If the fact, if in fact the dead are not raised, this is. Uh, verses 12 to 15 of 1 Corinthians 15. And then he says, If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. In verse 16 and in verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And then he goes on in verse 20 to say, Yeah, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. You know, I just gave you a bunch of eyewitnesses. I got this... I got this material from the, from the apostles Peter and James. They all appeared to him. He appeared to me. He appeared to me, Paul. So yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. So what y'all are saying about the dead not being raised, that's bunk. That's garbage. The dead are going to be raised. Because Christ has been raised. Basically, the the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus refuted the uh, Corinthians' notion that there there wasn't going to be a resurrection. He made a reductio ad absurdum argument also. He said, hey... If your belief is true, Christ hasn't been raised, and if Christ hasn't been raised, you're wasting your time. Christianity's false. But then he says, ah, but Christ has been raised. I mean, that's basically Modus Tollens' reasoning. If the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. Christ has been raised, therefore the dead are raised. I mean, he's, he's basically making a Modus Tollens' argument here, and the creed that is cited that I that I always use in my uh, apologetic historical case for the resurrection. And, y- and you can read you can read about that. I can't remember the podcast episodes in which I go into that, but you can read about that in my book, My Redeemer Lives, Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus. The book is called My Redeemer Lives, Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus. But after he after he refutes the Corinthians, after he provides all you know this eyewitness evidence and and stuff, Paul was a very good apologist, by the way. Um, then he talks about what the re- then he talk then he goes into the doctrine of resurrection. After he proves the resurrection, 
by pointing to Jesus, he said he, he talks about what the resurrection body is going to be like. And I'm going to be reading uh, verses First uh, Corinthians 15 verses 35 to 55. But someone will ask, "How are the dead raised? What, with what kind of body will they come?" How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. The stars differ from star, and star differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. Uh, by the way, I'm going to break in here. I have a blog post about Adam and Eve and evolution and architecture and how they are archetypal, their formation accounts are archetypal. And this verse, 1 Corinthians 15.47, is going to play a role in making my case. i got a whole bunch of blog posts on Genesis uh, scheduled for August. The first man was of the dust, uh, as was the earthly man, so are those of the earth. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the dust of the earth. We're all made from dust, folks. It wasn't just Adam. Okay, back, back to the top, back to the topic at hand. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and, and mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 55. So, what he says here is that our resurrection body is going to be imperishable. It's going to be invincible, immortal. It's not going to grow old. It's not going to die. And he says, we're not all going to sleep. And remember, sleep is a euphemism for death. We're not all going to die. You know, some people are going to be still walking around, living, when Jesus comes back. And Paul says, you know, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Whether you've died or not, you're getting a resurrection body. Uh, if, if you're dead, you're going to be resurrected, and you're going to be given a resurrection body. If you're still alive, you're just going to be transformed. You're, you're going to kind of be like Enoch. You're not going to die at all. You're just going to make that automatic transition between the perishable body to the imperishable body. And then, you know, at the very end of the passage I cited, Gary Habermas has pointed out that this is very often interpreted to be poetic, like Paul is just being very poetic and dram dramatic here. Where, oh death, is your sting? Where, oh death, is where hell is your victory? But he says, no, he's actually making fun of death. He's actually, like, poking him in the eye. Where, oh death, is your victory? Where, oh death, is your sting? <laughs> you ain't got no power over us. 
And then in verse 56, it says, the, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So death, you have got nothing on us. Jesus is going to rise us from the dead. Okay. What about, okay, question number two. This I get this question from my dad very often. Very often. Will we be able to recognize each other in heaven? Okay, now first, what do we what do we mean by heaven? What, do we mean the intermediate heaven, or do we mean the resurrection heaven? If it's the latter, then yeah, we're going to recognize each other. I mean, the disciples recognized Jesus after his resurrection. They knew, they knew who they were talking to. But if you mean the intermediate state, well, here's what gotquestions.org has to say about it. Quote, what does the Bible say about whether we will be able to recognize people in the afterlife? King Saul recognized Samuel when the witch of Endor summoned Samuel from the realm of the dead. 1 Samuel chapter 28 verses 8 to 17. When David's infant son died, David declared, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 23. David assumed that he would be able to recognize his son in heaven, despite the fact that he died as a baby. In Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, Abraham, Lazarus, and the rich man were all recognizable after death. At the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were recognizable. Matthew chapter 17, verses 3 to 4. In these examples, the Bible does seem to indicate that we will be recognizable after death. The Bible declares that when we arrive in heaven, we will, quote, be, we will be like him, Jesus, for we shall see him as he is, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Just as our earthly bodies were of the first man, Adam, so will our resurrection bodies be just like Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 47. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and, and the mortal with immortality, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, and, 43, and 53, end quote. That's a, that's a quote from gotquestions.org, uh, gotquestions.org's article, Will We Be Able to... Uh, will, will, what does the Bible say about... Will we be able to recognize each other in heaven? Uh, no, will we be able to see and know our friends and family members in heaven? Yeah, that gotquestions.org article I just quoted from. So, yeah, that, there's your answer, Dad. Uh, we will be able to recognize each other. Now, uh, how that works out, how, well, what the, exactly that looks like, I don't know, In in insofar as the intermediate state is concerned, because, you know, we're going to be immaterial. The soul is not a, a material thing. It's not made of stuff. And so, since it's not physical, you can't see it. It doesn't bounce... Uh, photons don't bounce off of a soul and then hit your retina, which, stim, uh, which uh, registers in your brain the sense of sight, so you can see it. You know, everything I see in my room right now, I'm able to see because they are composed of atoms and molecules, and light is bouncing uh, uh, billions and trillions of photons are bouncing off of the objects in my room. I'm looking at my books right now on my bookshelf next to me. They're bouncing, the photons are bouncing off of those books and they're hitting my retinas. And that's how I'm able to see them. And what about sound? Well, we sound is also physical. How are we going to be able to speak to each other? S sound is created by the voice box vibrating, and the sound is carried along on oxygen molecules at 600 miles per hour until it hits the ear of someone nearby. Oxygen molecule uh, sound is carried on oxygen molecules. That's why that's why no one can hear you scream in space, and no one can hear you fart in space either. So if you're an astronaut up uh, up in space, listening to this podcast, let her rip. <laughs> but anyway, we're not going to be able to. You know, so, 
you know, this is all physical stuff. We don't, we just, we are so acquainted with what it's like to be physical beings. It's very hard to imagine what it's going to be like to be a disembodied spirit. So, I don't know how how that's go- the Bible says. You know, I, I, all this this biblical evidence I, I cited from the uh, GotQuestions.org article says we're going to be able to recognize each other in heaven. But what that's going to look like, what that's going to feel like, how that's going to work, I don't know. Maybe it'll be telepathic. Maybe we'll project images of what we looked like on earth into the minds of all of the other souls around us. And maybe we'll speak to each other telepathically. I don't know. So, I don't know. Will it be telepathic? Will we be, you know, projecting thoughts into the minds of other souls? I don't know. I don't know how that's going to work out. That's, that's one of those theological mysteries. So, okay, question number three. Will we be able to sin in heaven? This is a big, this is a big one. This is a little, I, I get this question a lot. Will we be able to sin in heaven? Will we? Um, you know, in various places on my blog post and also in, on this podcast... Uh, in various blog posts on cerebralfaith.blogspot.com and in, in various podcast episodes like episode 10, these, the case for mere Molinism, episode 12, the soteriological case for Molinism, and episode 23, the free thinking argument against naturalism, in which I had I interviewed Tim Stratton on the free thinking argument. Um, I've argued that God gave man free will because he wanted us to love him and to love each other. And genuine love for God and genuine love for man is only possible if there's free will. Oh, by the way, I also talked about this in the uh, Problem of Evil episode I did recently. For true love to exist, there has to be the option not to love. Now, if man has freedom to choose either love or hate, to do good or evil, to serve God or rebel against him, this raises an interesting question. If we have free will, and I I believe we do, we've got plenty of biblical evidence and philosophical arguments to suggest that we do, will we be able to sin in heaven? Does, Does man have the freedom to choose to sin even after he passes through the pearly gates? If this is the case, it would seem that there could easily be sin in heaven. In which case, one could argue that it's not really heaven, because heaven is perfect. If man does not have the freedom, if man does not have the freedom to be uh, to sin in heaven, then you know, according to my argument, then there can't be love in heaven. And if there's not love in heaven, then it's not really heaven either. And so there seems to be a dilemma. How do we resolve this issue? Will will we be able to sin in heaven? There are a couple of viable answers to this question. I don't really know how to answer this question. In fact, I don't think any theologian or, or apologist does. The Bible is silent on this matter. However, I have found a couple of possible answers which may explain how it is that we will never sin in heaven, but our love will be genuine. The first possibility uh, is that we, we can choose between love and hate and in this life, but this choice is cemented for all eternity. And I heavily lean towards this view. I heavily lean towards the view that there is no free will in heaven. We cannot isolate, we cannot consider heaven in isolation from the earthly decision that led to eternal life. We have free will on earth, and God simply permanently cements that freely chosen, salvifically efficacious decision to accept Christ upon mortal death. Love still exists in heaven because God affirms the free will decision to follow God while on earth. Anyone who is eternally in heaven is there, is there eternally because they chose to be. While he, they, cho- they freely chose to go to heaven while here on earth. And the same goes for those in hell. The choice to sin or not to sin uh, will be made in this universe. We can choose whether we want to be with Jesus now, for eternity now. We do have free will now. We can make the choice now. And whether we can in the afterlife is irrelevant, I, I think. God won't override anyone's free will in the afterlife because their choice of good over evil will have already been made 
and it will have been made in this life. I think people... I think people in hell can't change their ways because God has given them over to their desires, as Romans chapter 1, verse 24 says. And we can't come to Jesus unless he draws us, as John chapter 6, verse 44 says. So if Jesus isn't drawing anyone, then they won't be able to make the choice of good over evil. That's the doctrine of total depravity. But that's fine, because they had an entire lifetime to accept Christ, but they resisted. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I believe God made the universe in a state of constant decay. Atheists often try to object that if God were perfect, he wouldn't make a universe filled with decay. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. The second law of thermodynamics is going to drive the universe into a state where no kind of life is possible due to the fact that the universe will have completely run out of energy. So they complain that due to the imperfection... God couldn't have made the universe. Well, to that I respond by saying that I think God never intended for this universe to be the permanently existing universe to start with. We know from Scripture that God is going to make a new universe someday. Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. So, perhaps God's creation plan was a two-parter from the start. One of the main purposes for this universe, I believe, is to give humankind a choice between a relationship with Jesus Christ and sin. That's the whole reason why God placed a tree in the Garden of Eden and declared it forbidden, to give Adam and Eve the choice between submitting to him or defying him. In the next universe, we might not have free will. We might not be able to change our minds once we're in the new creation. But we definitely have free will now. Now, in this universe, is the time to choose. The Bible, in both Testaments, uses the analogy of a bride and groom to describe our relationship with God. Well, using that analogy, I might say that this universe is God's marriage proposal. We can accept the ring or reject it. But once we're wed, divorce is not possible. There won't be a forbidden tree in the next universe like there was in this one. Now, we'll definitely have free will to do other things, like choice, like to, to play ping pong with the Apostle Paul or to play soccer. <laughs> um, but not moral choices. William, The philosopher and theologian Dr. William Lane Craig describes this view as follows, quote, During this life we see in a glass darkly, as St. Paul put it, but someday we shall see face to face, 1 Corinthians 13.12. Medieval theologians like to talk of the beatific vision which the blessed in heaven will receive. There the veil will be removed, and we shall see Christ in all of his loveliness and majesty. The vision of Christ, the source of infinite goodness and love, will be so overwhelming so as to remove all freedom to sin. I like to think of it as iron filings in the presence of an enormously powerful electromagnet. They would be so powerfully attracted to the magnet that there is simply no possibility of their falling away. So with the blessed in heaven." End quote. So, think of, think of this analogy. If you're standing on top of a tall building, you have the freedom to choose to jump or not jump. You have the power to do A or non-A, jump or not jump. However, if you decide to jump off the building, there's no going back from that decision. You can't just decide to fall back upwards from whence you jumped. Your genuine free will choice is cemented. Now you just wait to hit the ground. Likewise, it could be the case that in this life we have the freedom to sin or not sin, to rebel against God or to love God. But once we enter eternity, our decision is set. We can't go back. Our love for God and each other would still be genuine because we ended up there uncoerced. We willingly gave up our wills to God. So that's one possibility. A second possibility that has been proposed is that even if... Even if we could make the free choice to sin, we wouldn't want to sin. There would be a complete lack of motivation to sin. In the previous episode of this podcast, Tim Stratton alluded to this when he said that, um, that Adam and Eve and Satan and a third of all the angels took a suffering-free state of affairs for granted. And that one of the reasons why God allowed sin to enter the world and he allows evil is so that he is because he knew middle knowledge molinism that he knew that we would not take a suffering free state of affairs for granted again and so we would 
not sin again. That's that's one possibility. Frank Turek also uh, suggested this in a lecture I heard many years ago on YouTube, uh, and it was in a Q&A segment. Uh, he said that sin is often a shortcut to try to get what we want, but in heaven we won't be lacking anything. We won't need to steal. There won't be any sex because there will be no marriage. See Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 30. So there won't be any desire to have sex. And therefore, there won't be any sexual sin. There won't be any, pornogra any pornography or adultery or premarital sex or uh, pedophilia or homosexuality or, or, or sexual sin of any kind. Uh, because sex, the, the whole purpose of sex is to make new people. And if no one's dying, everyone has imperishable bodies, there's no need to make new people. We, we don't need to replace the current population. Um, we'll have everything we need. There won't be... There won't... The sin of divorce won't exist because no marriage. You can't be divorced if you're... You can't get divorced if you're not married. Um, so we'll have everything we need. So even though we could sin, we wouldn't have any incentive to do so. Taking this line of thought further, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they thought that they were lacking something. They believed the serpent that they had something to gain by eating the fruit. The serpent convinced Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them and that they, they could gain something by eating the fruit. They, could, they would be wise. They would become like God. Actually, I believe the correct translation is the gods, divine counsel worldview. But, uh, yeah, they, had, they thought they had something to gain. That's why they did it. Um, as an analogy, you could steal food from somebody. It's entirely, it's entirely possible for you to do so. But if you have cabinets full of food and you have money or, or food stamps or you have the means to get food on your own, you most likely would not make a free decision to steal food from someone because you wouldn't have to. There would be no need to. Just go to the grocery store. Um, or just go to your cabinets. You'd have no you'd have no reason to steal food if you have an abundance of food already. People and uh, you know, people with pockets full of cash would just buy the big screen TV instead of stealing it in the dead of night. So in conclusion, I mean, those are the two possibilities. The two possibilities is that God cements our free will decision to be in heaven once we get there, so there's no turning back. Or, we can sin, but we just won't have any motivation whatsoever to do so, and so we just won't. You know, so that, we, I don't know which is correct. Maybe neither of them correct. Maybe there's a third answer I haven't even considered, but we, the Bible assures us that Whatever the case, there isn't going to be sin in heaven. It's going to be a perfect state of affairs. Okay, question number four. Will we be able to eat in our resurrected bodies? I would say yes, but we won't need to. Imperishable, immortal resurrection bodies. Uh, and I, the reason I say we'll be able to is because just look at Luke chapter 24, verses 40 to 43. In this passage, to show that you know, the disciples think that Jesus is a ghost. And they're like, oh, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. And Jesus, he takes some fish and he eats it right in front of them to show, hey, I am a physical flesh and blood person. I can eat. And so, and, and you know, this is the resurrected Christ. So, since Philippians, I, I thought it was Philippians 3. I looked it up a while ago. I skimmed. I didn't see anything about the resurrection. It's in Philippians somewhere. I think it might be Philippians 4. Paul says in Philippians that our uh, Jesus' resurrection body is, is a prototype of ours. So what Jesus' body was like, we can, we, we can know that our body will be like that. So since Jesus could eat in Luke chapter 24 after his resurrection, it stands to reason that we'll be able to. Now, will we need to? I don't know. I mean... Our bodies will be imperishable, so if you go, if, if, so it, it would seem, I would seem, to, I would think that you would not be able to starve to death, but, you know, I don't know. There's a lot about 
the next world that we are not told, that we just don't know. Um, now, I'm running out of time. I had some more questions I was going to address about heaven. So I'm just going to get... I'm just going to get to this last one here. Uh, will we remember our earthly lives when we are in heaven? Some people would say no, and they would say that on the basis of Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Now some people, they interpret Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17 as saying, and we're not going to have any memory whatsoever of, of what we did when we were alive on earth uh, prior to the maybe even maybe uh, prior to the resurrection at least because the new heaven and the new earth but maybe even maybe even in the intermediate state uh, I mean you know we won't remember anything in the resurrection but we may not even remember anything in the intermediate state because this is you know we're not going to remember it's not even going to come to mind uh, but the what, the verse that cam, comes immediately before that, Isaiah 65, 16, says, For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. So, I mean, this this is Isaiah 65, 16, the verse directly preceding Isaiah 65, 17. So, I would argue that it's likely that what is being, what is forgotten in the new heavens and the earth is our past troubles. Uh, not all of our memories. I'm not going to forget. Uh, I'm not going to forget um, going to the ETS conference in Colorado in 2018. I'm not going to forget uh, being really into anime and manga in my teenage years. I'm not going to forget that stuff. But I am going to forget my troubles. Uh, the the you know our, our memories. There's there's no reason to think that all of our memories will just be completely wiped. We're going to have a mind wipe. We're not even going to remember that there was a world of suffering and, and decay. Um, the memories that will be cleansed are the ones that involve sin, pain, and sadness. Uh, as Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 declares, He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Gotquestions.org says the fact that the uh, quote the fact that the former things will not come to mind does not mean that our memories will be wiped clean. The prophecy could be suggesting the wondrous real quality of our new environment. The new earth will be so spectacular, so mind blowing that everyone will forget the drudgery of sin uh, and uh, forget the drudgery and sin of the current earth. A child who is scared of the shadows in his room at night completely forgets his nocturnal fear the next day on the playground. It's not that the memories have been wiped out, only that in the sunshine they don't come to mind. End quote. So that's what I think about that. Now, granted, you could take this literally, and here's why I say that: we're going to be in we're going to be in heaven. We're going to be in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. Am I really going to believe, am I really going to remember what happened during my 60, 70, 80, 90 years in this world? Five trillion, trillion, trillion years from now. I mean, eventually, the events of our current lives are just going to be so far pushed into the past that we might not, that we just won't, <laughs> we just won't remember them. It, it, it'll be like, It'll be like, you know, Lady Me on Doctor Who, you know, she uh she died and the doctor gave her this 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 alien chip technology that would just keep repairing her. And so she literally lost the inability to die. And so she went for centuries and centuries and centuries um the doctor even got in his TARDIS and went to the very end of the universe when the universe was experiencing heat death. And there she was. There was a shielder. The, uh, she took the name Lady Me. Uh, she, she never died. And so she lost memories of... She couldn't remember that time when she was a, a, a Viking girl in, in the village when the doctor first met her because just so much time had passed. It's very plausible to think that in the new heavens and the new earth, we might eventually forget this world. 
But I don't think it's it won't happen immediately. It might take a trillion years before that happens. So those are those are some questions about heaven that I have answered. That's what the Bible has to say. There were some others I wanted to get to, such as how do we know that heaven is real? And I would have pointed to the divine identity argument and Jesus' resurrection provide good grounds for affirming the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, and I would I would have pointed to well-evidenced near-death experiences. Gary Habermas is really... Uh, I would I would rely on his expertise because he's done a lot of research in this area. I also would have uh, also would have refuted the doc the Jehovah's Witness and Seventh Day Adventist doctrine of soul sleep, but I just don't have time to get into those. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith podcast. Shout out to my uh, patrons uh, Jordan Apodaca, David Parrish, uh, Kevin Walker, and James Whitaker. Uh, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith podcast, and I will see you next time.